Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. 149 is a brand new IFA group with a focus on tax advantages business. Today is CEO, Matthew Bugden, talks about the ideas behind starting it, how it makes it attractive to advisors, and some of the challenges of starting during pandemic. We also talk about the tax advantage market as a whole and giving good advice on these products. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggested future topics or guests, then you can email us at acquires at harmonico.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Matthew Bogdan, who's Chief Executive Officer at 149 Group. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Good morning, Dr. Brian. How are you? I'm reasonably good for Friday. How are you? Very good. Very good. We're, um, I'm sitting here in our London offices, just working out what needs to be concluded before we break up for the weekend. Excellent. Well, hopefully you'll have a nice relaxing weekend. So you would like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in the tax advantage of the industry? Yeah, certainly. I think it goes back really now to 2000 when I was working for a high net worth individual directly within his own private family office. We did a lot of investing on behalf of that individual, be that private equity, some PA investment deals and enterprise zones, and then more latterly film partnerships. And it was through that that I became interested in investment opportunities that had some form of underpinning through a legislated tax structure. So that was 2000 and 2001. And as you and your audience know, uh, I started life at Ingenious and ultimately was the head of the distribution business there that took the Ingenious tax efficient product set out to financial advisors, bankers, lawyers, accountants, tax experts. And, you know, I did 18, close to 18 years at Ingenious and the last 12 I was on the main board of that business and clearly steeped, if you like, in the world of SEIS, EIS, VCT and non-AIM business relief solutions. And now you're with 149, so maybe give us a little introduction of 149 does, because um, we're going to dig into this a bit more. But l- let's find out what, what, where we are. So 149 Group is not so, no, not so much new any longer. We launched officially in October of 2021. We're a national independent financial advice and fund management group in the UK, growing both organically, but also through acquisition. And we have our own in-house DFM business, not centered around tax efficient investments per se, but conventional investments. And right now we have approaching 600 million of assets under administration, 45 staff across four four or more locations in the UK, and looking to acquire firms that fit our our appetite and our credentials and our and our strategy. Yeah, you've made very good progress, I think, from a standing start. Yeah, I think I think like most, like some organisations in our space, often any funding that is attracted to those organisations starts 
with an existing business and infrastructure mm-hmm. and build out through there. Our strategy was not that, and and our strategy was embraced by our investors, where we don't buy large organizations and we don't build out from those organizations. We buy a number of smaller organizations and make those organizations fit the processes and the culture that we want to engender. So I want to rewind just a little bit and starting from from scratch is, as you say, is is, is quite an unusual thing, uh, our new IFA firm. Why did you decide to start a new IFA firm? I think it's a number of reasons, really. I think myself and the 149 team have a significant experience dealing with financial advisors because of our backgrounds. And we see the financial advice business through a completely different lens because we've been a distributor to it. Uh I think we have unparalleled insight into how the psyche of some of these financial advice businesses and the teams within them. And whilst consolidation within the FS sector is is very popular at the moment, Mm -hmm. we saw that there was an opportunity to provide something slightly unique and slightly different. And that is to attract the more sophisticated financial planner because we want to be able to enable them to to be able to offer tax-efficient solutions to their clients. Many organisations in the UK are potentially shying away from that that subsector of advice, whereas clearly given our background, we want to put our arms around it. And if we're interesting to advice firms looking for succession planning, it's because primarily they have clients that need this type of advice. And ergo, they have slightly higher value clients. And so therefore, why did we start 149 Group? It was to provide a home for these advisors as they look at their own succession planning, a home where the advice spectrum to their clients does not go backwards following an acquisition or a transaction, but instead goes forward through a broader range of well-researched products and services. And as you say, one of the tracks and presumably to you is that you are very familiar with the space which probably differentiate you from a lot of other people. But do you think there was a gap in the market here? Do you think there was something where other people were just not doing this or not looking this the right way? I think you've got, I think there is a gap in the market. You've got organisations that just won't support uh, tax-efficient investment opportunities for clients, mainly because they may not have the clients that need that type of advice. You know, they ultimately... There's got to be a market to address. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and therefore, many advisors and many clients don't need this, number one. And then there are another type of acquirer who might put the basic infrastructure around advisors enabling to do this, but still the advisor has to tease out what products and services and opportunities they want to recommend to their clients. And we are right at the other end where we have arranged Uh, a very comprehensive set of solutions through a panelled process, heavily researched, heavily diligenced, that enables these advisors to go to their clients where appropriate. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we do provide something more unique in that space. Yes. We're not just paying lip service to it. We really are embracing small cap tax efficient investing because guess what? 149 was also a recipient of that capital when it first put a business plan together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and having worked for you now for a couple of years, I I I fully understand your 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 focus on this area. You mentioned about funding, and I think with hindsight, if you're going to start a firm, you probably wouldn't have chosen sort of 2019, 2020 to start thinking about getting or trying to get it going uh, with the pandemic. What challenges did you find about getting this going and, and sort of getting that message across? Because if you're producing something different, sometimes people struggle to understand that or have confidence in doing something different. Well, I think it goes back way beyond the launch of 2021. Clearly, the, the idea and the thinking was in gestation through the latter part of 18 and 19, 2019, mm-hmm. or 2018, 2017, indeed. You know, the business plan morphed in several directions before we settled on a buy or an acquisition and integration strategy. My first day in Barclay Street on my own drafting the formal business plan was the 3rd of January 2019. Uh And through 2019, we raised capital from individual investors through SEIS and EIS, funny enough. Many of those individuals are known to your audience because they're well-known sector experts, be they financial planners, barristers, tax barristers, accountants and whatnot. The idea being that we provide the seed capital into 2020 to really kickstart the business. Clearly in 2020, the pandemic hit. I think in the early stages of 2020, the market was very nervous around entertaining any sort of transaction. Financial planners, quite rightly, were spending time pacifying the nervousness of their own clients and the assets that they were looking after for them. But the one thing that happened through COVID was two two things that happened through COVID. Number one, it enabled me and the team here at 149 to build out the proposition with more granularity because we weren't just poor. We hadn't paused, but we slowed, and therefore we enabled us to really build the proposition um, for the benefit of the advisors that we were looking to acquire, number one. And do you think that's paid off further down the line? Absolutely. 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 It enabled us to get the right people on the right seat with the right ethos, with the right planning, with the right product set. Yes, there's still a lot to do, and there always is. This is a, an iterative process. But pandemic was awful for just about everybody on the planet. And yes, it was a tough time, but with the money that we'd raised from private investors, it enabled us to do a lot more diligence and research on what the proposition was going to be. But moreover, the second point I was to raise was that what the pandemic showed showed the world is that financial services are extremely resilient. And it really proved that the world of the financial advisor, whilst it was very difficult for them and their clients through the pandemic, their revenues held up. 
they took the only dip in revenues for financial planners was potentially through initial revenue, i.e. new pieces of advice for new clients because they couldn't get to see them and they couldn't develop a relationship through Teams and Zoom. But I think what it's done, it's been a massive sea change in the sector because it enables now both advisors and clients to conduct meetings and reviews online. People are more comfortable about it. It's more efficient for both the client and for the financial planner. And yeah, so to summarise your, your question, was the, uh, was the pandemic, did it slow us up? Yes. And, but it's given us some benefits in terms of nailing the proposition more with more granularity. And secondly, it really clearly demonstrated to the funding partners in the world that UK financial services was very resilient to what was a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So one of the areas that typically concerns people when they're setting up something uh, or looking at um, the tax efficient or tax advantaged area is compliance. And if you're setting up a firm from scratch, how much of a challenge is getting the right compliance in place? It's paramount, really. I think it, it, it's both compliance, the way advisors provide the advice, how they are trained. So we are attracting into 149 three types of advisors. Mm-hmm. You know, typically between two and seven advisors in a firm. Typically, they're directly authorised. Typically, they have a completely mismatched demographic of their own shareholding and needing some form of succession planning. And often, they all want to be part of a bigger group. But outside of those criteria, we attract advisors that are currently owned by accountants or law firms, mm-hmm. professional services, because we have an expertise in how that dynamic works between financial planning and tax and accounting professionals. Okay, and is that from your previous experience as a genius or is that from the other members of your team? No, it's from Gabby Beaumont, who leads our M&A activity. Obviously, she's a chartered accountant, chartered tax advisor, uh, trained by Deloitte and worked with me in genius. So primarily, it is our it's where we've come from as individuals and as a team. And yes, we really do understand through our time with Ingenious how the interaction between accountancy advice and taxation advice and financial planning works. And on occasions, doesn't work so well. So we attract FS firms that are owned by accountants, FS firms that really like our own in-house DFM solution, Sorry, I'm sure most people know, but what is a DFM? Sorry, uh, our discretionary fund management solution. So we run a model portfolio service by a very experienced chief investment officer in Dr. Bevan Blair. We like to be surrounded by doctors. Mm -hmm. Bevan has significant experience at some very well-known houses. He runs our active investment service, our passive investment service, and our sustainable range of model portfolios. And it's really how advisors go about recommending to clients where their money, their pensions, their GIA, their ISAs should be placed. Mm-hmm. So advisors that we talk to, they like the way we run money. They like the pricing structure, which is very efficient for clients at 20 basis points. and 
they like the way Devon's philosophy is applied to the client outcome. But the third type of advisors that we're attracting are clearly those where EIS, BCT, Business Relief and SCIS is an important part of their advice proposition. And we have evidence to suggest that we are engaging with firms for acquisition where others have not been excited by their business, but, but we have. Uh-huh. And, I, and I think that's really important. So to answer the question, is compliance important? Absolutely. So we have been slightly delayed in launching our panel, not because of the the significant due diligence that we've all undertaken to arrive at that panel, but to make sure that the advice guidelines and the licensing procedures and and the communication that we're about to launch on our advisors is absolutely robust. What we're doing, not only are we attracting advisors that tax-efficient investments features in their range of of solutions for clients, but we're attracting advisors, and again, we have evidence of this, whereby they're saying, we know we've got clients that in some part of their investable assets need to be deployed into the more tax-efficient routes, but we as a little independent advisory firm haven't got enough time to research the market, to diligence providers, to look at the opportunities understand the compliance procedures and the training. We just don't have, as a small regional firm, the bandwidth. Clearly, they join us and we provide them with that. And that is a genuine attraction to firms that we are talking to. It seems to me that there's probably quite a lot of firms out there like that. You mentioned earlier about how there's a lot of firms that don't have clients that this is suitable. My guess is that most firms probably have a client or a small number of clients that are suitable, but as you said, they don't have the bandwidth, so they're just not addressing it. How, how wide do you think that problem is in the market? I think it's quite wide, actually, because every advice firm, irrespective of its size and shape, is undoubtedly going to have one or two clients where business relief, non-aimed business relief could be relevant, where a VCT yielding a dividend could be relevant, where they've got a capital gain that needs to be deferred through EIS is relevant. The problem comes that it might only be one or two of an advice firm's clients. And the, the secondary problem is that invariably it's their biggest client or their most important client. It's the person the with most the most assets. Client. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I can fully understand how advisors, and particularly what the advisors have been through in their teams over the last 24 months with the pandemic, they're just not going to focus on what the solution is for their client. There is a myriad of fund managers out there. They could be, they could spend a whole month meeting every fund manager, and at the end of it, they've still got to provide some advice they're concerned about their professional indemnity insurance. They're concerned about whether they're giving the client the right advice. So it's probably easier for them to not do so. Mm-hmm. Clearly, joining somebody like the 149 Group, we provide that licensing, that training, that support 
even if I or Gabby have to provide it directly, we will do it because it is a great calling card for them to go to their professional connections. So the bottom line is you're absolutely right. There are a lot of advice firms where they, they have got clients that probably need this type of advice, but have got no, gone nowhere near them with it. Yeah, because it seems to me the options for these companies are actually quite limited because either they refer their client to somebody else, which they're probably reluctant to do for, for business reasons. If they don't have time to assess themselves, they're, they're, there's very little that they can actually do. It's easier for them to say nothing than it is to try and provide some form of guidance or recommendation and get it wholly wrong. And as you know, we all know there are many moving parts in the EIS and BCT mm -hmm. sector around approved and unapproved, allotment, non-allotment, trading timetables. This is quite a complex area when you've got your biggest client exposed to it and you don't quite know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it feels like a big business risk as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So coming back to the sort of compliance and, and firms, have you had any issues or any, or you have any concerns about where you're taking on firms who have given advice or have advice process in place that differ from what yours are? Now that may be, you know, it, it could be by, by your perception substandard, or it may well be that they've just got different processes that aren't quite compatible with what, you, with what you're doing. You know, did you see that and how do you handle it? It's a very good observation. And, and, and that observation Brian, doesn't just surround how they promote or recommend tax-efficient investments. Mm -hmm. It surrounds absolutely everything in their business. There are thousands of directly authorised firms in the UK which the regulator needs to regulate, and they are all priced for advice differently. They segment their clients differently. Their approach to fraud is different and their back office solutions are different, and the way they platform and custody assets is different. Everything is heavily fragmented between these thousands of firms. And what organisations like us seek to do is to provide efficiencies and harmonisation of some of those processes, be they technology processes, back office processes, or indeed central investment propositions and that is all for the good of the client because ultimately they get a more efficient streamlined price effective service where the advisor has had more time freed up following the sale of his business because we're doing some of the stuff that he didn't or she didn't want to do or was rather spend mm -hmm. time with clients so everyone's a winner but the reality is when organizations look for succession planning and look to sell their business they have to realize that there are some changes afoot and i think because of our experience dealing with advisors and some of us managing large teams of individuals we are very sympathetic and empathetic to the changes that these individuals are going through um, or what they're going to go through through a transaction and yes, we undertake a whole heap of due diligence on them, and they do due diligence on us as well, and we're mm -hmm. the right partner for them. Yeah. And clearly, there's a meeting of minds, and some of the areas, there is room for discussion. 
But on the tax efficient area, I think we we have come across firms that are just very keen on our ability to identify the right fund managers and the right advice processes. And we have other firms who are active in this space, but ultimately realise that our background and experience is potentially more granular. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they have to accept that what they were recommending before might not be what they might be recommending going forward. What it also enables us to do, which is there's a very real example in, in an acquisition that we hopefully will be announcing in the not too distant future, is we've got a very good insight into how to diligence the back catalogue of someone's existing holdings in tax-efficient investments. And I think that's unparalleled, to be honest, uh, in, in the acquisition sector anyway, is that we know where there are there have been challenges in the tax-efficient sector. We can see, we can, we, 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 we've even crafted our own set of additional due diligence questions when an advisory firm has been quite prolific in tax efficient investments so that we can get right under the skin of how they go about identifying clients how they go about recommending solutions and what are those solutions yeah it it seems to me that yeah if you've got the right diligence process in place and obviously straightforward but sometime you know that no diligence process is perfect, I think. No, no diligence process is perfect. But, and I, but because, you know, as we know, there are only, uh, as we've already discussed, there's only uh, so many firms in the UK that provide this type of advice. And if they do, it's to the top end of their client base. And if they do that, it's often only 5 to 15% of the client's investable assets. The data set to perform due diligence is very small. We're lucky because of our background, we know what questions to ask in that diligence process. And, and I guess that leads on to another question which I wanted to ask you, which is how do you see the process of giving best advice in the tax advantage market? How should advisors be doing that? Well, I think we've all talked about this before. Is it is it a tax transaction or is it an investment transaction? Mm-hmm. Well, for, first and foremost, it's an investment transaction where your some of your risk is underpinned by a legislated tax structure. They have to be suitably sophisticated clients because at the end of the day, in the main, well, pretty much in the main, these are investing into small, unlisted, unquoted companies where that is a completely different ball game than a conventional pool of quoted equities, be that through a model portfolio or a, or a multi-asset fund or whatever. And therefore, you have the core is to identify the right client and the, right, and the client's attitude to risk. And as long as the advice is given appropriately and the client understands that there's an element of investment risk here, then then they should start navigating what are the tax benefits to doing this, Mr. Klein. And that's why it's quite a complex area. It's an investment piece of advice and it's a taxation piece of advice. You wouldn't do an EIS necessarily unless you've got income in charge or a gain to defer. 
Um, so you have to do both bits in your recommendation and that's absolutely critical and invariably the client is, has to be slightly more sophisticated and understand what those risks are. Mm-hmm. And do you see advisors coping well with the skills of both areas? Because it seems to me that advisors need, I mean, advisors always need some sort of knowledge of tax, but in this, they probably need, in this area, they probably need more taxable knowledge. And they may, I, I can envisage circumstances say where they're linked to an accountant and say, okay, our accountants are suing all the tax outside and we can just relax and just do the product. I think that's why we're come to, we've come into our own with 149 in as much that the, the advisors we're buying are, are linked or were linked mm. to an accounting firm yeah. where there is that tax advisory piece on tap, number one. And number two, we're buying firms that already understand this part of giving adv- the advice spectrum. And therefore, what we're providing is a robust overlay. And I think it comes down to what we said before. People shy away from this this area, unless they're absolutely confident of providing the investment advice and they're absolutely confident of providing the right tax structuring advice. And I think through 149, they get that. They get that support. They get that delivery. They get that research. And that's why we're attractive to a lot of firms in the space. Okay, so taking a slightly wider view, something I know you have some opinions on, which is the, t- the sort of tax-efficient tax advantage market as a whole, because we've seen a lot of changes over the last sort of five years. And, you know, I mean, you've been involved, you know, t- almost two decades now. So how do you think the market will develop going forwards? I think there's two big elephants in the room. Uh, and you will know this because that's how we one of the planks of our selection process at 149 for our panel mm-hmm. is transparency of the underlying investments that the fund manager is making and the communication and service levels to the client and the communication and service levels to the advisor. There, there's an ever-increasing thirst for information, mm-hmm. but in every walk of life, and we have chosen fund managers where they understand that the information to advisor and to the client is key. That's number one. And number two, the biggest elephant in the room is because of the nature of these stocks, a lot of advisors can't access the information through conventional administration and custody platforms and the reporting thereof. And you know, we've seen a number of attempts in the sector to platform some of the uh, the unquoted stocks. VCTs, it's slightly easier. Uh-huh. I'm not saying that 149 is going to change the world in respect of being able to platform and report on these solutions. But because through 149 Portfolio Management, our in-house DFM that has very strong relationships with conventional investment platforms, mainstream administration and custody platforms. We have relationships at the most senior level at those organisations. And because we understand EIS, VCT and BR, and because we understand platforms and custodying, it may be that we'll get there in terms of being able to report slightly better. It's certainly not on our immediate to-do list, but you could argue it's on our wish list. 
Yeah, it's, it's something that's been highlighted before. I think we had Stephen Jones on the podcast last year, and he highlighted the problems of reporting in this area. And it's very much, I think, an unappreciated challenge. And we've seen, I mean, there's a couple of platforms out there that probably haven't got it quite right yet either. Is it something that needs a lot of investment, do you think? Is it something where you would have to get another platform or an established platform to to sort of develop something? Or is it something you think an IFA firm could develop its own platform to sort of resolve? I think ultimately we're in a very strong position to influence the outcome. The fund managers are great at fund management, but possibly don't really appreciate the plight of the financial advisor in A, giving the advice and B, reporting it back to the client. Uh The administration and custody platform understand the need to give clients information about asset allocation and returns and and MIFID to costs, etc., but probably are very less, very, very, are not very savvy when it comes to tax efficient investments. You come to 149 and you've got both of those disciplines in-house. So I think we stand a fighting chance of working with mainstream platforms in order to do some element of enhanced reporting, but it's not going to happen yet. But I think it's a matter of watch this space. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do wonder that you've got a whole pile of platforms in you, who carry mutual funds, pension funds, whatever, that have not actually done anything in, in this space at all. And it's perhaps understandable in that you have maybe focus on quoted things and decided the unquoted things are too hard. But there's clearly issues about critical mass cost complexity that have kept the mainstream platforms away from this. And I do wonder about you know, these these factors are not changing for these the, these people unless financial advisors feel that it, this is such an important thing that they can only go with a platform that that has it. Absolutely right. So there's two things to that as well: is that the, obviously the platform market itself is going through a period of consolidation, um, and therefore there's a lot of. M&A and activity within that space. So therefore, they need to drive their own organic growth initiatives and they need to become more accessible to more people. But you're absolutely right, is that an individual advisor pushing a mainstream custody platform to do something, they're not going to get very far for obvious reasons because it's it's in the too difficult box. But when you've got an organisation like 149 that is wedded to advisors that actually on average do more than most Uh and because we have very comprehensive and deep relationships with those custody platforms we may be able to influence the outcome a bit easier and a bit quicker as i say that there's only so much that one can do at this stage of our evolution but it's certainly it's on my wish list and and presumably that's something that you see as you grow larger you know, I know you've got ambitious acquisition plans. You will get more influence and perhaps be more likely to persuade these people to to do something. Well, I think you're absolutely right with that. And what's happening in the platform market is very similar to happening in the tax efficient market. And let me try and explain that tax efficient invest tax efficient fund managers are raising capital, as I will know by personal experience, into those funds is an extremely 
tiring, difficult, challenging, sophisticated, pressurised role. And it's not getting any easier because firms are selling their business to organisations that don't support tax-efficient investments. Uh So you could be a BDM in a mainstream fund manager. You've got a fantastic relationship with a regional IFA firm who's generating a million pound of EIS every year. It could get acquired by an organisation where that is no longer available to their clients. It just stops. The loser, not only is it the client, it's also the fund manager in the space. So working with the fund managers that we're working with in the tax efficient space is interesting because they are they're talking to us about their own customers that are looking at their own succession planning. But not only will benefit 149, but benefits the fund manager so they don't actually lose assets following a transaction of their customer, the IFA. Yeah. The same challenge, the same challenge exists in the platform market. So the platform market is cozying up to big IFA groups, of which we are and will be bigger, because they see it's a method of helping them not only attract assets, but stop losing assets. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if one of those enablers is to maybe open the technology to make it available for unquoted stocks, then they're going to be more open to trying to achieve that. Yeah, yeah. You you make it sound very compelling there. <laughs> um, right. We'll we'll set, we'll make sure we send a link of this to the managers of every platform out there and see what they say. Plenty of boots. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, well, I know. Look, I don't underestimate the 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 techno- technological issues. But when we came to selecting platforms that we wanted to work symbiotically with it with a lot of it was to do with their tech their architecture the level of customer service for the versus the level of scrum teams they had developing the proposition so yeah it, it it's a hard area but it's an interesting one to watch well we shall watch this space and see what happens what i'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions so um because you're not an investment manager we've We've cut out the, the couple of investment ones, but we'll throw these at you and we'll get your thoughts. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. I think the pandemic is one area where you can never plan enough. Now, to plan for a global pandemic possibly was never originally featured on our risk and mitigants register. Um, but now having us all been through that, I don't think you can ever underestimate the time it can take to, to develop and, and deploy certain initiatives. You know, you've got these great ideas and the team here will know that I'd like it all done today, but I'd like it done this way. And this is how we're going to deliver it to our advisors and our power planners and our administrators and our clients or their clients. And it doesn't happen quick enough. And where we failed or where I have failed is not having enough, when you fold in the the issues around the global pandemic, you you don't appreciate how long things can take sometimes. 
but we're here, so that's fine. Yes, we got, through it. <laughs> we got through it. Does this mean that when you're planning now, you make more effort to do contingency and in-depth planning, or or do you have on the shelf you just have deeper uh, sort of risk mitigation strategies? I think you 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 now spend a lot more time analysing what if this happened, what if that happened, how could we accelerate it? But if it doesn't accelerate, what are our contingencies around that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the EIS and VCT industry in which we work is fantastic in many ways, but it's far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? I think it comes down to those issues we talked about before. If, Mm -hmm. if, I think it, it, it is all about education and training. It's about awareness, it's about client communication, transparency of investments, transparency of where fees are or are not generated, and the reportability to clients. That's the main thing. I don't, I'm not suggesting for one minute that every client should avail themselves of a tax-efficient investment because that's not suitable and not appropriate. But I think there are more clients out there where a greater level of return is required to fulfil their cash flow ambitions. And in order to do that, they may have to take on a slightly different attitude to risk. So I think there's still a healthy market there, but it, it comes down to the education and training, both of, of advisors and clients alike. Yes, yes. I, well, we were grateful you co-sponsored our white paper and asset allocation, which showed that more people should be investing into venture capital industries. So I'll, I'll just throw out a little thanks there. So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. Uh, are there any books out there that you like and would recommend? Yeah, I was waiting for this question. Um, <laughs> two things when you, when, you, when you build a business from the ground up, as, as the investee companies will know of all of our fund managers that we've decided to, to partner with, reading is uh, that, that takes you away from the business is a very big luxury. Mm-hmm. As an individual, um, my learning style is not reading and writing. It's more visual, auditory, kinesthetic. So reading is uh, books is something that sadly doesn't fit fit in my regular downtime. But what does fit in my regular downtime is collecting vinyl records from one of my favourite bands of the 1970s and 1980s. So the book I would recommend that helps me in my quest to be a completist collector is the Jam Retrospective a visual history into the issues of the 7-inch, the 12-inch, and the rare album releases from Paul Weller, Bruce Foxton, and Rick Buckler. So a book that was published in 1997 is probably the most reliable book if you're ever collecting memorabilia and vinyl records from the jam. Okay, well, that's probably the only time we're going to have that recommended, but I'm now really curious. I, I recently kind of rediscovered the jam. I sort of I was never really quite into me young, but I, I, I saw it was a top of the pop sort of retrospective on them. And I was watching and thinking, I like this tune. Oh, I like this tune too. Oh, I really like this tune too. <laughs> so it's, it's funny how you can come back yeah. to things. Well, it's something that... Um 
something that shapes, you know, when you go through your early to mid to late teens, I think music shapes the person that you are. And I wouldn't like to think I'm as angry as Paul Weller was in those days, <laughs> but his tenacity and the the ability to, to bring a band together at the top of its game um, is something that I think should be applauded. Absolutely. As a big music fan, I would second those sentiments. Um, so hopefully bringing together a top band now. We, are, we, we have a fantastic top band now, uh, and certainly it's a damn sight bigger than a three-piece that the jam was. But, uh, yeah, we have a fantastic team, a fantastic band, and, and, and that's not head office necessarily. It's, it's people and the organisation, the firms that we've acquired, they've been very, very receptive, very open-minded, fantastic bunch of people that we're working with across uh, Charter, RWC and TWP, and that will be, you know, supplemented by a number of firms in the in the coming months. Okay, so on that note, if anyone wants to find out any more about what you're doing at 149, where should they go? Well, needless to say, we have a we we are quite prolific on LinkedIn. We have a website, 149group.co.uk. We are based in the heart of the West End, where we are headquarters just off Barclay Square. We are more than happy to meet people here. We often have our advisors from around the country meeting us here as well. Go to our website. I'd welcome some feedback. And the, the website will soon grow as we take on more advisors and clients. I think the next element that people are going to hear from 149 is probably in the next couple of weeks when one or two acquisitions will be announced of another group of like-minded individuals joining the 149 family. That's fantastic. So we'll post links to those in the show notes. So thank you very much for coming on today, Matthew. It's been really good to get an insight into building a new IFA firm. So thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, and thank you to all at Harbin and Co for the support that you've given us over the development phase of 149. I, I very much enjoy working with you and the team. I enjoy working with you too, so we can do that little mutual love fest at the end. Thanks very much, Matthew. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at harbinandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.